Welcome to The Church Door, a place where I can post my Bible studies and sermons for your listening pleasure. I'm the Reverend Matthew Fenn, pastor of St. Peter's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Stratford, Ontario. Thanks for tuning us in. All right. Welcome, everybody, to our Bible study for this evening. Uh, today we're looking at first or Second Samuel chapter five and six. This is a this actually works out to be a decent place to stop. In fact, um, uh, for now, and then we'll pick this up again um, after Easter, so like April second or probably third week of April, because uh, after Easter I need a break, <laughs> so I'm taking. <laughs> I'm going to pretty routinely take a week of vacation after, well, the week after, whatever. But, um, so so we're having Ash Wednesday next week, a week from today, Lent starts already. Um, And um, so uh, please come to Ash Wednesday uh, if we're open, if we're not, tune in. Um, And you can also um, send me an email or give me a call. Um, uh, for to meet Wednesday night uh, evening beforehand, uh, get the ashes um, and, and do the corporate the general confession thing. Uh, I'll, I'll the ashes are on Ash Wednesday, but you can come for any of the Wednesdays prior to the Bible uh, the uh, Lenten services and, and get confession. All right, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have caused all your holy scriptures to be written for our learning. May we so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. But by the patience and comfort offered by your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. How many of you noticed reading this week there was a definite change in tone? Uh, some some people are nodding their heads. You notice the change in tone. Yeah. Uh, if you notice the change in style or change in tone, we, we've, we've had several weeks of vivid descriptions of courts and, and, and intrigue and this kind of thing. Um, now it looks more like an editorial than an eyewitness account. That's because this section is likely from national records. Um, so now, and you can tell that um, by the a very official statement that starts at the uh, in verses four and five. Um, you'll, if you read from here on out, every king's reign will will be started with that formula. So now this is official court trans court documents. Now, um, if you're keeping score, the year we we ha- we know a year for this. Uh, It's hard to pin the dates previous to this, but uh, we can pin this date. This is 1010 BC. Uh, So we have a, we can, because you can calculate from the, from, from uh, the the deportation to Babylon, we have multiple Israel, Israelite, non-Israelite sources on that date. So then you can just calculate the reigns all the way back. You following me? So this is 1010 BC. David reigns from 1010 to 970, he reigns 40 years. Um, that's not a round number, that's an exact number. 
Um, sometimes the Bible will give you a round number, but not here. This is an exact number. Um, all right, so the first section here, uh, the first section describes David uh, becoming king. Um, right after the assassination of Abner uh, and Ishbael, um, the elders of the tribes uh, who used to be allied with Saul's son, Ishbael or Ishbosheth, um, journeyed to David at Hebron and, and joined with Judah in recognizing David as their king. So they're honoring that agreement that Abner worked out. You remember that last week? Abner worked out a deal that he was going to bring all the, the other 11 tribes over to David. Um, they're they're going to honor that. Um, notice there's a bit of, um, this isn't like a, a, a monarchy, like you go in, you conquer a land. They proclaim him king, right? They anointed him. The elders of Israel did it to him. Um, they also establish a covenant, it says, between David and all the elders of Israel. This covenant is, is an agreement. It's their constitution. It's a negotiation between David and these other 11 tribes. It's likely denotes the responsibilities and duties the people will have towards David and the responsibilities and duty, duties David's going to have with his subjects. And all of this is ratified in a religious ceremony because it's said to be a covenant before the Lord. Um, interesting little side note, the elders of the tribes say to David, look, we are your bone and flesh in verse one. Um, they're not saying we're all of the same nation. Um, they're not. They're from um, the other tribes and he's from Judah, right? Um, and, and they've been warring for, for a long time. Um, uh, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you might have caught the connection to the language um, used by Adam to Eve. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So what's going on here is the elders are proposing a sort of marriage, a marriage between all of the tribes. So now they're not just loosely confederated tribes um, or, or several tribes of shared history, which is what they were up to now. Now they're going to be one unit, a union, um, a almost like a marriage. So the events fought in the rest of this chapter are not presented in strict chronological order. Um, we'll take them in chronological order, um, but just note that these aren't in, in strict chronological order. And they don't say it are, they just tell you this happened, then this happened, and this happened. Um, so first, the first thing that happens, as soon as David, the Philistines, as soon as they learn that Israel is now going, David's now going to rule Israel. David's old allies now become his enemies again. They marched out their forces and prepare an attack. Um, they hope to prevent David from consolidating his power. With David as anointed as king, both of Judah and Israel, the Philistines would be hemmed in and penned against the Mediterranean Sea. Um, if you look at your screens here, and I will show you a map um, here. Okay, everybody can see my map? 
nod vigorously. All right, thank you. All right, so notice, here's David. This is this is where this is the land of Israel. Um, as we pick up our text, notice down here, um, uh, it says the the um, gray. That's David. Notice the other ten tribes are the green up to, up top. But notice right between them. What's right between them? It's this little strip of beige. You see that? Uh, that strip of beige between the two lands means Philistia is coming between David and his and um, um, and uh, the northern tribes. And notice those little dotted lines. What goes? Those are the trade routes. And notice they go right through that little patch of land. They don't go over here near the Dead Sea. Maybe that's wilderness and it's not barren. But no, so, so notice they're holding that spot there, right? So they're preventing David and they march there and they prevent David from, um, from attacking there. Um, now I'll stop that map and I will show you the other map. So here's the other map. Notice it's a zoom in on that area. Um, you'll notice this is, um, um, here's Gath and, and they've, they've come in to this valley near Jerusalem and notice that it, it, that's the, the, the way the battle goes there. Um, so, so I'll leave that map up here while, while I keep going. Okay. Um, so the Philistines, you'll notice in the green there, um, if they don't have that land in the middle that, that, that was between the northern tribes and the southern tribes, they're pinned in that little strip of land next to the Mediterranean Sea. They're stuck there. Um, uh, David is perfectly content on leaving them there. He has no, at this point, he has no intention to conquer that region. He has every intention just to leave them there so long as they stay out of his business, so to speak. And David, um, so, so, so when the Philistine troops, when they assemble in this valley, they, they're attempting to block David's passage and the commerce to the north. They're, prevent, they're attempting to prevent this union between Judah and Israel. David, his reliance on the Lord for this battle is very evident. Before the battle begins, he seeks the Lord's guidance beforehand. The Lord told him to go out and fight the Philistines and that he would be victorious. When the victory is won, David attributes that victory to God. David was content to let the Philistines just sit, sit there along the coast. Uh, but the Philistines attacked again. Um, you, you don't think of the Philistines as one nation. They are five independent city-states that are loosely confederated. Um, they don't have a king. So it could be that one of the city-states attacked and then a different city-state attacked at the same spot. Um, uh, that it's important to, to, to see that, um, to, to figure out well, well, why would you do it again? Um, it could, it's likely a different group of, of Philistines. Well, um, 
David once again asks the Lord how to respond to the Philistines. And the Lord told him that this time he should use a different tactic. This time he should attack them by the rear. And then the Lord promises to give David a signal by causing a sound to, of, uh, to be heard in the tops of the trees. Uh, the result this time is the Philistine forces are defeated and th they flee all the way to Gezer. You can see it there. It's right on the border uh, of the green. Um, so, um, so um, from this point on, the Philistines are no longer a threat. They're done. They're hemmed in. They're stuck there. Um, they, you will not hear them bothering the Israelites anymore. God's, uh, David, God's anointed king, has finally defeated their enemies. Um, uh, now, um, now that the Philistines are confined to that green section over by the Mediterranean Sea, um, the central hills now belong to Israel and Judah. David's now free. Only then is David free to besiege Jerusalem because Jerusalem is right in, was right in the middle of that area used to be controlled by the Philistines. Um, up to this point, Jerusalem has not been an Israelite city. It's been a Jebusite city. Um, there's only been one or two references to it, and it's always been a Jebusite city. Jebusites um, are one of those tribes that lived in this area. Um, why is that important? It's important because it's not an Israelite city, and it's not a Judahite city. Um, it's neutral, both politically and geographically. Uh, that means David's desire to capture Jerusalem, to make it his capital city, um, means David, um, there's probably still a, tad, a little bit of tension after the civil war. And David fe feels the need to have a, a capital that's going to unify them, and they're not going to be um, biased over. Um, and, and Jerusalem is that capital. All right, we move on to chapter six. Um, this chapter describes two different attempts to bring the Ark of the Covenant, um, which we all know now is stored in, in, a, in a wooden crate in some place in the United States, right? That's, all, that's what Steven Spielberg taught us. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, um, um, David attempts to bring it to the city twice. Um, he can only get access to the Ark of the Covenant after he's defeated the Philistines, because guess where it is? It's in that, it's in the north, in that, uh, on the border. Um, is it in the map? Yes, see? The map there, it says Kiriath-Jerim, right above the Valley of Rephaim. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was located, right? So it's right in the middle of that area he just took back from the Philistines. So he couldn't get access to it up until that point. Um, so, um, okay, so the first event, the first, I'm gonna skip that, that's, all right. So the Ark, you remember, is uh, one of our questions goes into this. And so we're gonna, I'll let you suss this out a little bit more, but very broadly speaking, the Ark is the symbol of God's presence. Um, the Philistines had destroyed 
uh, its previous home in Shiloh. Um, and it was in the custody of a family who had been guarding it for several years. Um, now remember, when David attacks the Philistines, what did he do first? He inquired of the Lord. Is there any mention of him inquiring of the Lord at this time? No, he does not inquire of the Lord. And given the way things turn out, maybe he should have this time. Um, Might have been a good idea. So they grab the ark and they put it, and they're, they're going to put on this big liturgical procession and ceremony. There's like 30,000 guys or something here. He brings out like a whole, the whole army. Um, and, it, and, and certainly this is supposed to be magnificent. The whole people, including David, they're making music and it's a grand occasion. And they were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, it says in verse five. Now, nobody including David, has any doubts that this is a great liturgical festival procession, that this is a wonderful way for them to worship God. Now, David's desire to bring the the ark to Jerusalem is commendable, uh, but on his first attempt, he failed to look into the proper means to transport it. The ark was placed on a cart, a new cart that had never been used, um, and it's pulled by two oxen. It was accompanied by two guys, Uzzah in the back and a guy named Ahio in the front. Um, By the way, this method of transportation, putting putting it on a cart, was the exact same way the Philistines used to bring it back to to the Israelites. That's back in 1 Samuel 6. It's a violation of the liturgical rubrics that the Lord had given to Moses requiring that the ark should be carried by a specific tribe of Levi, a subset, the Kohathites. It's Levites, but a specific family of them. Um, When the oxen trip, Uzzah reaches out his hand to keep the ark from falling and the Lord, boom, strikes him dead. Just as Moses' regulations warned might happen. Um, This event, by the way, is also recorded in 1 Chronicles 13. It takes David three months to figure out what went wrong the first time. Um, And what really kicks his butt into gear is when he hears that the Lord has been blessing the house of Obed-Edom where the ark had stopped. Um, David now makes another attempt to bring the ark to his capital city. The second attempt to bring the ark is recorded in 1 Chronicles 15. And there it clearly notes, David says, ah, we need Levites. That's, and we need to carry it on sticks. So obviously he's done his research in these three months. The second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem works and they, they follow God's law, the liturgical rubrics in the law strictly adhered to. It's put on poles and on the shoulders of Levites. Um, and then you have this big festival liturgical procession uh, where uh, now this is really funny. David has, was, when Uzzah died, David's first reaction is, is anger. He's angry at the Lord because he doesn't understand, right? And then he's afraid. And so what do, what do they do? They pick up the ark 
They take six steps. They put down the ark, kill two animals, <laughs> sacrifice two animals. Then they go back and pick up the ark and keep going after they're sure. So they're like, well, maybe something has to die first. Um, if the animals die, then maybe none of us will die. I find it quite humorous that they just, they take the six steps, they stop, they put the ark down, they make a sacrifice, then they pick it up and keep going. Um, so the ark is brought into the city of David um, and there's great rejoicing. There's a big celebration. Uh, the ark is placed inside a special tent that David's made for it. And there's burnt offerings and there's peace offerings offered to the Lord. Um, uh, and what's really uh significant is that with this sacrifice uh, there is also a communal meal they all they all eat so here you have um the presence of god with um worship and uh a meal just some interesting things there well david's first wife michael the daughter of saul has been watching now Michael is none too impressed. David, in her eyes, David has been disgraceful. He's, he's dressed lewdly. He, he's, he looks like a common uh, slave. He's dancing. He's making a fool of himself. Uh, she thinks this is so inappropriate for a, for a king, a royal status. Well, David responds to this critique by asserting that God had chosen him to be, to, to be king instead of her father, and that David was willing to be even more foolish than this in order to celebrate the kingship of God. Um, David is kind of displaying here uh, that messianic attitude, an attitude like Jesus, um, identifying himself with the slaves. Jesus humbles himself like David does here, but Jesus humbles himself far more. So then the, the chapter ends with Michael, uh, a comment that Michael remains childless for the rest of her days. Now, the text does not tell you why Michael is childless. There's two reasons, but potential ones. Either she was punished by God directly, um, or more likely, there's a deliberate decision by either her or David or both of them uh, to avoid um relations um I, I i lean that way given what happened last week with michael what's clear is that michael is cut off from any future involvement in royal dignity um she's there simply as a trophy piece to remind everyone that he is the legitimate rightful heir to saul um and david um, does not want anybody from Saul's family line to be king after him, even if it's a son through Michael, his own son through Michael. Saul's line ends, and there's no chance that Michael will have kids there. Okay. Some application. Um, there is some big theology going on here, and I'll try to condense this and, and uh, not condense, but um, unpack some of this here. Um, so first point, the, the, the point in the first section in, in, cha in chapter five, verses one through four, is that David is the proper representative of the whole nation. 
he been he, David only comes from one tribe, Judah, but he he's king to everybody. Um, he's proved his credentials by defeating his enemies in battle, um, and he's received God's call, and, and God has backed him. Um, and, and it's on that basis that David is made king of the whole nation. Now that theme of all of the nation being gathered together is a main point in the Bible. Israel gathered together, Israel united to praise God, worshiping God as he intended, is supposed to be a condition for getting the whole world to come in and worship God. Um, that's what a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament talk about. It's the reversal of what happens because of original sin. Original sin divides us, doesn't it? Uh, it splinters us. Uh, we get into factions and tribes and teams, and we fight amongst one another. Well, the idea here is that Israel, the world, is united, and that's a clear uh, under one king. And that's a clear thing theme in the Old Testament, and you see hints of that here. And that's one of the main messianic uh, Davidic king tasks that Jesus has, great David's greater son. And he did, was he said, I was called to gather the lost children of Israel, the scattered tribes. Uh, when Jesus uses, when he uses this language about the coming of God's kingdom, he would have been understood in his day to mean that all of the tribes of Israel who were exiled by the Assyrians and exiled by the Babylonians and who are divided uh, by their own sinfulness, all of the Israelites would be gathered back together. That's how Jesus would have been understood. And in fact, but the way Jesus does this in his ministry is he reaches out to sinners. He reaches to the sick, to the marginalized, to uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, to tax collectors. Uh, he goes all the way around offering forgiveness. It's a mission to bring the nation and the world back together as the apostles get sent out. Um, that theme in the New Testament is a fulfillment of a major part of the Old Testament, which you see beginning here in David's reign, with all the nation coming together under one king. Uh, putting down their rebellion and, and, and all going to one king. Additionally, there's another part of that, is that this reference to uh, Hiram, uh, the king of Tyre. Uh, is he Tyre? Either way, he, he's, a non, he's not a Jew. He's a king up, way up uh, north of Israel. Um, this is a sign that non-Jews, that's us, Gentiles, would be summoned to worship at the house of God. Uh, in this case, it's the construction of the palace of David. Um, now notice in 2 Samuel 5.12, David says, then oh, it's only after Hiram gives him construction material. It says, David then perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. But didn't he perceive this when the elders came and made him king at Hebron or when he defeated Saul or when he conquered Jerusalem? Why would the building of his, the king's palace trigger this awareness of God's plan? 
it's part of the fact that this is not a Jew. This is an international person, uh, a Gentile, giving David a gift. David knew that he was king of the nation, intended to gather the world together. Uh, uh, and he knows that because a non-Israelite king acknowledges his great worth. Um, we see this in Jesus. Um, uh, the church under Jesus is meant to be a vehicle to bring the entire world together. I often say this, but the church is not German. <laughs> the church is multi-ethnic, uh, and that's our goal, to bring all people of all nations together. David became king uh, David becoming king of all Israel and being recognized by the nations is a type of Jesus who um, it reigns over the new Israel, the church, uh, who is comprised of all nations. Now, with this this thing with the um, this mention of, of of the capture of Jerusalem, from here on, um, the Old Testament speaks of Zion, that's the mountain, of Jerusalem, not only as David's royal city or just the capital of Israel, but of the place where Israel's divine king, God, the Lord, Yahweh, reigns over the whole earth. Uh, there's lots of Psalms and lots of prophecies that deal with this. According to the biblical teaching, Zion, Jerusalem, is the dwelling place of God. And that deals that has to deal with the ark, too. And this is the place uh, where uh, we'll continue to be a focal point of history uh, until uh, the new creation. Um, okay. Uh, the other, the last point I want to make is, is a point that begins to be mentioned in chapter five and is mentioned more fully in chapter six. When David conquers the Philistines, it says in 521 that they abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them away. Uh, Chronicles says they, they burnt them with fire. Um, the problem that we face is always idolatry, bad worship, not worshiping what we should or the way we should. And that's important we a lot 21st century people tend to judge the validity of a particular worship service based on how much you got out of it or how much you enjoyed it uh this indicates that our sometimes our understanding of the god we're worshiping needs to be um uh, brought into clear focus it needs to be corrected um because the god that we are worshiping is the holy, righteous God. Um, and, and it's the awesome nature of God that prompts us to sing our songs. Consider why would God be angry at Uzzah's attempt to prevent the sacred ark from falling on the ground? And the key issue here is liturgical impropriety. He's not following the rules that God uh um, that um, God had put out. Um, is this a question? Um, I don't think so. No, it is. 
So I'm going to save that until then. Um, yeah, I'm going to save that because maybe you guys will get it. I don't want to give it too much away. All right, with that, that's my, um, we'll, we'll get into more of that application when we get down to, to, um, to question five. I'm going to save that there. Um, but let's open it up to you. You can go ahead and unmute yourselves. I'll stop sharing that image. And let's uh, dig into the questions here. Uh, the first question here, uh, what are the three reasons? What three reasons do the representatives of the tribes of Israel give for recognizing David as their king? He was an Israelite, right? Uh, that, that's, the, uh, that, that's one. What, what's another yeah. one? They give three reasons. God's ordained it. God's ordained him, right? They, they recognized God's, God's work in his, in his life. And, uh, and, and they also said that David had led them, so they already recognized him as a leader. And what kind of leader specifically? Well, in this case, the king. Right. Um, military. 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 Yeah. That's okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, military leader, right. That's uh, Now, in the grand uh, scheme of things, uh, first, second Samuel, what significance do these reasons have? Why are these important for what we've been studying? All those things were God's plan. Exactly. These are God's plan. You've seen those three reasons unfold since David was anointed king, haven't you? Um, and, and even some of those things like uh, defeating the, the Philistines. Um, uh, that was what God intended. That's why God allowed them to have kings in the first place, wasn't it? We learned that back uh, last year when we talked about the reasons why Saul was allowed to become king. Good. Okay. Um, any more, any, any more thoughts, comments, or questions on David becoming king in, in, uh, over all of these, these tribes, all the tribes, not just Judah. No. Okay. Um, Let's talk about Jerusalem now in question two. The city of Jerusalem was an unconquered Canaanite stronghold, and it did not belong either to Judah or Israel. Why did David make it his capital city? What's the significance politically, and why did David succeed? Didn't what? offend either party. Yeah, it didn't offend. It was so in neutral, neutral territory. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that significant <laughs> politically? He's not, not playing favorites. Favorites, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, he's not playing favorites, that's right. And, and so how does David succeed in capturing the city? First, speak of it naturally, then supernaturally. So naturally speaking, how does David win? He knew of the secret tunnels underneath the, the water tunnels. The water tunnels, right. Um, so he, 
the Hebrew here is very, very muddled and, and, and it's hard. You're, some, some different translations might put it a different way. But he, David either blocked up the water tunnel or he had people use it to enter the city. I'm, I'm not quite sure. And the thing about the blind, the, the blind and the lame, um, nobody's really sure exactly what's going on there. So if you didn't understand that, don't worry. Nobody, uh, nobody does. So. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, because the, the Hebrew just does, it's ambiguous. It doesn't really make sense. And we've, anyway, it's just one of those things where we don't, we're not, we know that they made fun of David and David, made fun of them back that 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 the the gist we get but the exact details are a bit lost on us okay next what do you see as the full significance of the statement made about david in second samuel 5 10 According to 512, what truth does David recognize and what is that importance of that truth? So first, let's talk about 510. Uh, what's the significance of that statement made about David there? The Lord God Almighty was with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and why is that significant? Like, why does that matter? Because he established him. And, and what does that what does that imply about David's reign and, and the things that are going on here? He's not relying on his own strength. He's relying on God's strength and guidance. That's right. And um, how are things going to end up for him with, uh, with God on his side? All Israel will be blessed through him. Right. So, uh, Things are going to turn out good. God's if God's on David's side uh, and the Lord's with him, uh, God's going to prosper him, and things are going to turn out good. What about um, what about uh, according to five twelve? What truth does David recognize, and why is that important? What truth David does... understands that the Lord is making him successful. Yes, that's right. And, and David was also compliant with God's will, too. Right. Because, because he did understand it. Right. And um, so David understands that God has exalted him, made him king. Um, why, why is that important for David to understand? Speaking of David. That's his source of strength. That's his source of strength. And we, all, we know David tends to be He's a good military leader, right? Um, he's he's pretty young. He's 30, 37 at this point. Um, and um, and he's pretty and he's pretty clever. And we 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 we've seen him try to trust in his own uh, cleverness. So it's important for David to recognize that all of that was not due to how how good of a military leader he was. It's, it's not how clever he was. It's because God was, God had his back, so to speak. Right? All right. How does David, 
question four, consolidate his success and establish himself firmly in his kingdom. Uh, Seems like the deciding moment here was with the defeat of the Philistines. Yes, that's right. Now notice the way David faces his enemies. How does David, what's, what's David's big strategy? He, he inquires of the Lord. Inquires of the Lord. Yeah. He inquires of the Lord. So what parts of that strategy could you incorporate into meeting problems and oppositions that you face in your life? I do that, but he doesn't answer as well as he did David. <laughs> Not quite as clear cut there. Not quite as clear cut. Sometimes no. that's true. Um, um, but that, but it's, it's still true nonetheless, right? That we should uh, be inquiring of the Lord. And that doesn't just mean prayer. What else? I mean, what else does that mean? Because David didn't just pray and wait for a liver shiver to uh, send him in the right direction. Um, um, we, we can read and study God's word. You can read and study God's word and, and talk to pastors and other Christians who have also read and studied God's word. Ask for advice. Um, but yes, read and study God's word because that's where God speaks today. God used to speak in days of yore through Urim and Thummim and weird sounds in the tops of trees. Uh, he, he now speaks through his word. Um, and uh, it's important for us to see that. We always have access uh, to God and his guidance through his word. That's why understanding it is important. That's why understanding the history of it is important too. Because uh, if you can understand the history behind a passage, then understanding what it means for you is a lot easier. Um, uh, that's, um, that's an important part um, of understanding all this. All right. Well, the con con concubines have to do with all this. Uh... <laughs> well, it just shows... <laughs> Uh, it, it just shows you that it show it, it goes to show that David's he's still not quite following everything the Lord told him, right? Um, because the the law set out in Deuteronomy clearly says he's not supposed to have multiple wives as a king, uh, and he's doing it anyway. Um, so um, it's showing you that David's not perfect, um, and that God. Uh, because David trusts in the Lord, God is overlooking his sin, right? God and God used one of the concubines uh, give birth to Solomon. Well, that's not a concubine, but yeah, she'll be a or one, one of his, his wives. Wife. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and it's it's the wife that he will. Um, and we'll, we'll we'll get there, but it's 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 a wife he gets in less than less than honest ways. Um, 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 yeah, so, but, but that, that is important to note that, that, and, and like I said last week, um, when it says Solomon had 500 wives, where did he learn this trick from? He learned it from, he learned it, he learned it from daddy. Um, right. Um, 
So there's lots, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of good, there's a good lesson in, in both, in that both ways too. Uh, the first lesson in that is that um, if we trust in God, God forgives our sins, even if we don't even realize we're doing it, right? Do you think David realized that, that, he, that he was sinning against God by not following Deuteronomy? I don't think so. I, I think it was an, a, a legitimate, honest. He didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, um, he should. Well, why wouldn't have God, if they had a good relationship like that? Why couldn't have God just kind of given him a, a reminder of this is not a good thing to do? Good question. Um, God sometimes doesn't. He doesn't always get involved. Getting, you know, he doesn't come down and remind us every every step of the way oh you shouldn't be doing that oh you shouldn't be doing that god um, works in mysterious ways <laughs> that's right um in the next chapter we'll see that he should have like in chapter six we 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 start to see that he he's he he learns he's starting to learn some things about this but it takes some takes him some time let's talk about the fun question so first, tell me a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? It's a transmitter to God. A transmitter to God. <laughs> yeah, a wooden box covered with gold. Wooden box covered in gold. What's contains, on top of the ten, contains the Ten Commandments, does it the not? Ten Commandments, it does, yeah, there's, absolutely. There's a pair of angels on top of it, and that is God's seat. Yep, what kind of angels? Cherubims. Cherubim, that's right. You can all sound more. Um, you can all sound more intelligent um, and more. Um, you can you, you can impress your friends. Here you go. You impress your friends. Um, it it wouldn't be pronounced cherubim. It'd be cherubim. Cherubim and I am. When you add I am at the end of a Hebrew word, it's plural. So you have one cherub, many cherubim. All right. So, um, okay, let's see if you covered. Okay, yep. Uh, you've got, it was overlaid with gold. You got that. Um, it's the, uh, um, isn't it the throne of the Lord? It symbolizes yes. the throne. Yes. Yeah. It, it doesn't just symbolize it. It's God is said to be enthroned upon the cherubim. It's God's seat. In the ancient world, you'd often leave an empty chair in the temple. Why would you leave an empty chair in the temple? Not God. in like for, yeah. for the God for the God you were worshiping. This is his throne, right? Yeah. Well, that, that's that's similar idea. Um, and so then um, what does it represent then? It represents God's presence. presence. Yeah. yeah, that's right. God's presence. Now, um, what does the Ark of the Covenant point towards and point forward to in the New Testament? Holy Communion, body and blood of Jesus. Absolutely. Um, that's number two. You got it. Uh, number one is a bit harder incarnation yes specifically who represents the ark itself 
Jesus. Jesus Christ. Oh, no, Mary is the ark. The ark oh, is just a golden okay. box. It's what's inside the ark that's important. What's inside the ark? The word of God. Oh, no. the, the, the tablets. And what's inside Mary? The Jesus. word of God. The, the word, word of God. God. And what does what does Mary do? She goes from the hill country of Galilee and she goes down to Judah and stops at someone's house. If you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew, and then what Luke does when he tells that story, he uses some of the same turns of phrase, and he's he's he wants you to, to remember this story of the ark stopping at this guy's house and blessing this guy's house for those three months. Um, doesn't she stay uh, at Mary's house Mary's for three for three months? Or Elizabeth's or, uh, house? Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth, Elizabeth's yeah, house. Elizabeth stays at, uh, yeah, for three months. Um, now, um, just, and, 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 and so that's, that's some important uh, stuff Well, that's there. like this story where when he, you know, after us or whatever was killed, then they took it to, to the family who was blessed and didn't it stay there for three months? That's exactly the point. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's a, so we call this in, in Bible typology. It's it's um, it, it's like the Bible has echoes of itself. Do you know what I mean? The Bible echoes itself all over the place, and specifically, the Old Testament echoes the New Testament. Um, and you see this back and forth. Uh, the flood is an echo of baptism, right? This is an echo of both Holy Communion and uh, the incarnation of, uh, 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 right? So you get echoes of this all over the place. Uh, and that's important to see here. That's a big, big concept. Um, all right. So we've got the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, and what, you know, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, as we said, as I said in my intro, um, how was it supposed to be transported? By the poles. By the poles. Two poles, you lift it up, and that kind of thing. Um, on pain and, of death. And if you go back to Exodus, the poles were never supposed to be removed. That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and carried by the House of Levi, members of, right. members of the House yeah. of Levi. That's right. Um, so why is it important that David makes the decision to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? It's God's coming with him. God's coming with him. Right. Yeah. Um, think more about that. What, what, why is it important that the Ark of the Covenant is God is with him in Jerusalem? What does that do for him politically? Jerusalem well, is a whole city. Clout. It gives him clout and clout. it's a whole city. But it, but it gives him clout, right? It gives him validity. There you go. It gives him validity. Um, now, if God didn't want him to have validity, he wouldn't have validity, right? If God can strike us a dead, he can strike other people dead. So just because there are political ramifications, God is making those political ramifications, right? You see that? God wants David to have the clout. He wants Jerusalem. Everybody in the north has to come where now to worship? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You can only worship God at the Ark of the Covenant. You're only supposed to, right? Um, and there's been no official shrine 
since the Philistines destroyed it, right? Um, and so now the official place of worship is in David's new capital city, right? So see, see how important that is for him? Um, and that's why um, God does that, and, and it has... Um, wouldn't that make the city's economy grow? Because everybody's coming from all over. Yep. So it brings a lot of wealth from outside, inside to the city. It also converts the Jebusites. Yep. The Jebusites weren't wiped out. They are just kind of oh. amalgamed into the, the, the population. They, they likely just lived together. It doesn't say he wiped out the Jebusites. It just says he took the city. So the people who were living there were still living there. Um, and so, but slowly, I'm assuming you, you make a big, a big shrine to Lord in the city. And what happens to those Jebusites? They either marry or they move out and Jews move in. Right. Um, and so let's talk about David's, what, what, what mistake does David make? First, he didn't ask whether he should bring it. That's right. True. Yep. And the second one? <laughs> he didn't adhere to how it was to uh, be transported. That's right. Didn't. And, and how did God react? <laughs> God well, zapped someone. God zapped someone. There's this um, funny cartoon, and it's a picture of God sitting at a computer. And on the computer, screen there's a guy walking underneath a piano and god has his finger right on a button and the button says smite <laughs> um now god kills uzzah that's bothered a lot of people does it bother you it bothers david yeah, well, right in that arc, there's a yeah, commandment yeah. that says, thou shalt not kill. Yeah, and, and Uzzah was just trying to do good. Yeah. He yeah. didn't want God to land on the ground. Now, do you think Uzzah was condemned to hell, or or do you think God's just making an example of him? That was my lingering question. I don't think he did anything wrong. No, I don't, th I don't, think, I don't think Uzzah's condemned to hell. I think Uzzah was killed... Because he, they, every the Israelites should have known better. God gave them all very specific instructions not to do it this way. This is not just any piece of furniture. This is the piece of furniture that represents God's very presence, and where God had lived on on top in a cloud. Right? Like this is not just any box of golden wood. This is God's box of golden wood, and He told them exactly how He was supposed to to do it. And he told them, he warned them of the consequences for doing it. Um, and, and so I don't think Uzzah necessarily was condemned to hell. There's nothing to say that. But he does, God abides by his own rules, doesn't he? Um, um, it shows what, he disciplines friends and foes. That's right. And it shows, and what other way, what's David's reaction? He's angry and he's afraid. He's angry and then he's afraid. Afraid of whom? God. God. God, right? So the zapping of Uzzah gets David's attention, doesn't it? Yeah, and maybe it was God's way of making David toe the line. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so that's um, that's an important thing. So, so why does David change his mind 
once again about bringing the ark back to Jerusalem? What what changes his mind? I think it was a little bit of greed because he saw the blessings they were getting and he wasn't getting in on them. <laughs> hey, they're being blessed. I want to be blessed. Right. There's a little bit of that there. And maybe God's blessing them to say, to you know, you know, maybe they, there could be a bit of superstition here, right? Oh, let's, we, maybe we shouldn't touch this thing. Maybe it's a bad luck charm. Well, now they're being blessed. So they, you know, so now it's, oh, well, maybe. Not so bad. Not so bad. You just have to do it the right way. <laughs> um, <laughs> what does he do second? What does he do differently the second time? He takes a few steps and then he makes some sacrifices. Well, but first, how does he transport it? He carries it properly. Oh, yeah. He carries, yeah. He and he has a Levite lineage carrying it for him. Uh, I, just, I just think that that whole scene is really funny where they take. Uh, <laughs> Take six steps. Is anybody dead yet? No. Okay. <laughs> Put it down. Let's kill some animals. Make sure. Right? Yeah, I, we're going to make sure God is happy. Make sure God is happy. <laughs> um, and they keep going. Um, how long does it take David? To how long between these two events? We've said it, but. Yeah, wasn't it three, three months? months? Three months. Three months. Yeah. Now, what do you think that tells us? about the nature of the Bible at this time. It wasn't readily available. <laughs> Not readily available, right? I mean, it took David three months or somewhere in within three months, it took David that long to figure out how to do it right. Um, the book of Leviticus um, as all these books as we know it don't exist complete in a complete form until 500 years from that from that point that there's there's bits and pieces of writings that Moses wrote and and these things and they're scattered all over the place uh, how many of you have seen uh, Fellowship of the Ring the movie or read the book so a lot of you have and the very first thing when 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 Gandalf uh, sees the ring, what does he do? He goes off to minister at the city and there's a whole scene of him scouring through all these leaves of paper until he reads the story about the ring and he gets the code and he can go back and toss the ring in the fire and find out if it's the right one. There's a bit of that going on here, right? He's, you can imagine David sifting through papers, talking to Levites in the, uh, and priests and somebody finally comes up to David with the scrap of paper, which has the bit of Deuteronomy or Leviticus or, you know, and it says, see, look there, you're supposed to have priests to do it. David's Why would he have to do all that? Couldn't he just pray to God and ask him, like, how do you want me to do this? Because when he's trying to decide to go to war, he prays well, to God, should I do this? Uh, but in this case, God has already, God doesn't, God speaks when he needs to speak. In this case, God has already spoken through his word, and they should have, and David should have known this. Uh, and there's a bit of a jab here from God to the Israelites. At this stage, the Israelites aren't doing a very good job following God. Um, I mean, they, they have, they're not keeping, they're not even keeping the Passover. Um, uh, they're not following half of the traditions they should. 
Um, and, and so this is a bit of God poking them, trying to get David to find what he needs to find. Um, yeah. Well, the Levites like would have known is... how to do it. Pardon? And wouldn't they have been around to say, hey, wait a minute, guys, you're doing it wrong? Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe it required them to look it up, too. Um, right. But it seems it seems like David's kind of a two guys because he follows <laughs> the Lord in battles and stuff, but then other things he's he's really lacks on, like yeah. like the concubines and the many wives, yeah. and so he's it's he's he's like two people. Sometimes you're following the word where he follows everything, and then other things he just disregards. He's a sinner and a saint, you might say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's a great point. I mean, David portrays the perfect sinner saint, uh, right? He just he just, just shows. But isn't that all of us? There's some yeah, things. Yeah, but that's the point. That's the point. Because God still loves him. Absolutely. And keeps him safe. So. And 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 why does God still love him and keep him safe? Because he's chosen by God. Well, yes, and, and but but being chosen by, but what what quality, what attitude does David have towards God that makes God overlook his sins? Because he knows that God, he knows God, and he yep. believes in God. So there you go. He trusts in God. Yeah. He, right. Um, um, David is the one who says, "Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven." Blessed is the one in whom the Lord does not count the sin. David wrote that. <laughs> so that's David's attitude towards God. That, Folks, that's justification by faith in a nutshell. We continue to sin, and yet because we trust God, God overlooks our sins uh, and continues to poke us and prod us and work with us in our lives. And we get angry at him, and then we get afraid of him, and and he sends us prophets and we mess up again. And, and, and this is the cycle until we die and this old flesh is done away with. And, and, and right. So when you re see this, you can see a picture of yourself in David. Sometimes you pray, sometimes you're on fire for the Lord. And sometimes, uh, you know, you, you forget to do something important and, you know, you, yeah, it's a really good points to make. Um, um, what truths, question seven, does 2 Samuel 6 have, uh, what, sorry, what truths revealed in 2 Samuel 6 have a bearing on the way Christians are called to worship today? What lessons do we learn about the holy things do we learn from David's experience? They are sacred and should be held in respect and, and with reverence. What holy things um, are we talking about? Worship today. Law. Law. What else? What are holy things? There, I've heard it. Somebody said it. Sacraments. Law. Right. Sacraments. So, um, preeminently what? Which? Baptism and the Eucharist. Not baptism necessarily. The Eucharist is what we're th I'm thinking of here. Okay. Why, why, why the Lord's Supper? Why do we have to be careful in how we treat the Lord's Supper? Because it's, it's Christ's body, body and blood. 
because like the Ark of the Covenant, it holds God's presence. And um, this is why we treat the elements with the respect, with some respect. Why does pastor fall down on one knee sometimes when he's at the altar uh, after he consecrates the bread? Reverence. Because God is there. Are, are you going to stand in the presence of God? I'm certainly not. Goodness gracious, no. I'm going to fall on one knee or bow my head or something because God is there, right? You, if the yeah, queen but God is everywhere. Ah, but he's not everywhere for you. He is so. No. <laughs> he is so. You can go into the forest and get forgiveness of sins. Listen, when uh, Christ came, the ceremonial laws were done away with, the moral laws were kept right sure well and god is everywhere but god is not everywhere for you for you take eat this is my body given for you the only the only place god has promised to be for you is in the church where he's you're two or three gathered in my name there i will be with them this is my body this is my blood Right, his word gathered together in the church. That's where God has promised yeah, but to it's be. Not the church. No, it's, it's the word. Gathered. It's mm -hmm. the word. And it's the word, the word. Can be doesn't, Luther, doesn't Luther say that God is present everywhere, but he's only accessible in certain means? Right. Yes. So what but he's I, everywhere. I, I, God is everywhere, but that doesn't help you. Well, if it doesn't, I think you're talking about the forgiveness of sins, where you go, there's where you get, but I think what well, I, God is with us all the time, but yes. we need to go to the sacraments. Why would I, the sins, right? Why would I say the Lord's <laughs> Prayer then? Right. But, but when God it is, says, forgive my sins. When we talk about, when we talk about, the, the lord's supper um yes. that in with and under uh the bread and the right. wine is right. the true body and true blood of our lord and right. savior jesus christ when we say that yeah that is so much more than god being present everywhere that is so much more than that he's present under the bread and the wine for you to right. eat and the drink god right. is there on the altar right um, as Luther says, you can eat God, you can taste him, you can chew him, you can drink him, right? That's what Luther, that's how Luther describes this. Uh, God is on the altar. Um, that's why it's God called is on my, in my house. But not in the same way he's in the bread and the wine. Well, that's, I think that's, that's the, the fundamental, that is the absolute, that is the absolute fundamental distinction between the Lutheran church and uh, other Protestant churches. The number one, why does Luther, when, um, when Zwingli and Luther meet, what, why doesn't Luther shake his hand in fellowship? Because he would not agree that the, that the, the Lord's Supper is, uh, that, that, that Jesus is really, truly, and substantially present on that right. altar. Right. So and that's I, I different, believe... that's different from how we believe the Lord is everywhere. That, that those we, are two different things. Why do we pray then? Why do we pray every morning and night? And every time we 
need an answer to something. I'm not sure I, I understand. Uh, you can pray because God is omniscient and, and he can hear you. Uh, yeah. and, 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 but when and you the same, go. Same as David. If I'm going to make a big decision, we always pray. Sure, absolutely. It. But, but so David learns an important. If he's not there for us, why pray? So you pray to God. Um, does God promise that because you pray to him when you're on the boat fishing, that you'll get the forgiveness of sins? What? All I have to do is ask. Yes. But, All I have to do is ask. I ask every sure. day for the forgiveness of sins. If we don't have that promise, if I have to literally walk into a church building to get that, then God's promise is only, you're telling me that God's promise is only good for a certain degree. God's promise isn't like that. God's promise no. is that you can talk to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. God yeah, gave us the are. Lord's prayer too. Right. So at night when sure. you say, forgive us our trespasses, yeah. Yeah. as we right. forgive those who trespass against us, you're asking him for forgiveness. through the Lord's prayer. You but should I, get forgiveness of sins, right? But, but where, when you, uh, okay. I, I, think I, you I feel are, what you're talking about, communion. That's, a, yes. that's almost a separate issue. That's not, that's a separate, a completely separate, different thing that you have to look at it. Where I understand why you go down, because the presence of God, that's a different type of a presence. Right. It's not... The, Okay, it's not the same as the presence that, yes, God is with us each and every day. He sends right. his helpers. He does it all sure. for us, right? Sure. And you so might kneel. Hey, you might kneel. How many of you, how many of you either now or, or at some point in your life knelt by your bed when you prayed? Many times. We, many times, right? Yes. Um, so, yeah. The point here, there's a couple points here that we're, we're let's get back on track. <laughs> all right you're on track <laughs> okay god was everywhere but god pro had stated specific regulations specific things about that golden box additionally that golden box the ark of the covenant was the place where god himself visibly Yes. Resided in a different right. way than his omni omnipresence because he had resided there with a, like a tangible cloud, the Shekinah glory, you might call it, right? The glory cloud was there. God, um, and in the tent of meeting, God would, uh, Moses would walk in in front of the Ark of the Covenant and talk to God face to face, it says. All right. So that box was consecrated to to um, mediate and deliver and be the symbol of God's presence to Israel. The box itself was not important. It was the right. fact that it was used as a vehicle for God's presence. Why does God tell Moses to take his shoes off because it's holy ground? Why is the ground holy? It's holy because god is there his presence and it's more than just his omnipresence because he's saying no this ground here is, is is holy because i'm literally abiding in this burning bush at the moment so the point here is there are certain things which bring to us 
God's presence. What brings God's presence to us in, in a more in a more tangible way than just He's omnipresent? It's the Word and the sacraments. Specifically, two things we need to highlight about treating these things with reverence. That's that's the point here. We have to treat these things with reverence. Why? Because they carry God's word. They carry God's presence. Would you burn a Bible? No. 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 Right? Would you just, you know, why do we treat the Bible what? with respect? Why wouldn't you spit on the Bible or trample on it or walk on it? Because it's the word, the word of God. Right. The word of God. Right. Wouldn't do that. Right. Why was so the why was the curtain rent in, in two to get rid of all this old ceremonial laws? This is not ceremonial. This is just respecting God. But remember, David also was happy and joyful and danced. That's, yes, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. That's another but, thing that I think sometimes we as Lutherans are so yeah. serious. <laughs> Well, I, we lose we lose that that joyfulness and happiness that should sure. be part of the service too. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and that's and, on and, my well, that's on my bucket list. I want to go to church in uh, Alabama or somewhere. No, black, the, a black church because I now, want to be joyful. <laughs> now, now be now being joyful. The 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 problem on the other end of the spectrum is. Um, you have to be joyful, but David, David was being liturgical. He's wearing liturgical garment. He's wearing an ephod. He's in a procession. There's, 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 there is an order to what he's doing, but he's also being joyful in doing it. Um, he's being reverent. How do we know he's being reverent? God's not striking him dead, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, um, so the point here, though, is it's not a ceremonial law to say you need to treat your Bible and God's word with respect. That's just common, that's, that's just common, that's well, common sure. sense. And the same yeah. thing is true of, of the elements of Holy Communion, right? Oh, the bread I, and the I wine. Do res I do respect. I oh, absolutely. I'm, my only but, point here, the, the point here is just like the Israelites needed to show respect to the Ark of the Covenant because it held God's presence. Yes. So also, when we encounter the holy things of God that carry his presence, we should show them respect yeah. too. Not that we're, there's some sort of uh, ceremonial law that we have to obey, but these things carry God's very presence to us. And that's important. And we should um, recognize that. And that's why um, we have the, some of the practices we do. That's why we eat all of the leftovers in the Lord's Supper because we don't want uh, bread that was consecrated to be the Lord's body and blood to be eaten by, you know, crows, crows or, or <laughs> spilt out mice or to be spilt and, and, and these kinds of things, right? We treat but that's not that's not in the Bible. That's something that men are right. That's You're right. Not, that's your that's our choice to treat it yes. that way. Absolutely. Yes. It's our choice to treat it that way. Yeah. But we but the, the, the point here is not the specifics. The point is that the 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 attitude of reverence for God's holy things. Joyful yes. reverence, absolutely. 
but reverence nonetheless. We tread carefully because this is, why do we bow our heads before we enter the chancel? What's, what's important about that little square space, right? That little square space where the altar is. Why do we bow our heads before we go in there? God is present. Because God is present there. We're trying, we're showing some, is there, is, is there a command somewhere? You must bow your head before you enter the chancel. No. Why do we do it? Because we all show some, some kind of bodily um, acknowledgement. Acknowledgement, acknowledgement of yeah. God's presence. Because yep. um, reverence, your body, mind, and spirit, if you show a bodily action, it, um, it'll follow in your mind. You're not, we're not Gnostics. Um, we need to finish the questions. Okay, why, just just a quick thing we since we're on this topic. I'd really like to recommend a book for everyone that has questions regarding the sacrament. It's from Concordia. I don't know if you can see it there. Oh, yes. Good book. What? Um, Heaven on Earth. What's the oh, and it's in mirror. Well, look at that, would you? Yeah, Anyways, Heaven it's on called Earth. Heaven on Earth. The, yep. uh, yeah, the gift of Christ in the divine, divine service. service. It's a good it's a good book really uh, good book I, if I, somebody I, wants to borrow it I, I have it in the office okay all right let's let's um okay we got the holy things i wasn't expecting that question to explode quite the way it did that's okay um let's talk about michael's reaction what's um that's the last major question here before I wrap up. Um, uh, how would how do you explain Michael's reaction to David's enthusiasm? I think she was jealous. Jealous? She's she much despised him completely. She despised him completely. Yeah, she was basically kidnapped and forced to go with David from yeah, her other husband. That's right. Yeah, she was uh, she was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what, what? Um, and what are the consequences of her scorn she doesn't have any children yeah. yeah do you think that's a god thing or a david thing both both it, it very well could be both very well could be both likely is both actually mm -hmm. I, I, through because means, she right? had no children from her first husband did she or her no. other husband second husband None, none that we know of no. um, um, because David, God said what did God said to, to Saul that none of his kids would ever be, be on the throne okay. um, and so um, humanly speaking God works through means as we always say uh, and so it very well could be that David, David knows, knows that and he doesn't want one of Saul's kids on his throne um, she, she's there to legitimize him and, and and that's about it. All right. What was the what did you say was the chief chief verse or the key verse in this section? I did Second Samuel's five ten. Yep. Yep. That's me too. Yep. That's the one I I put <laughs> I down myself. No. Second. Anybody have anything different than that one? Six fourteen. David danced before the Lord with all his might. It became greater and greater for the Lord. I had five two. You will shepherd my people, Israel. That's, 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 that's another good one. That, that, that's another good one too. Yep, absolutely. And lingering questions about this section. Anybody have any more? Any questions that stick in your mind after hearing all this? Just a statement. 
Sure, we should have reverence for each other because we're all temples of the Holy Spirit. Very right good on, point. Dale. Absolutely. Yes. And we're all created in the image of God. True. Yep. That's why. Does that, does that mean I have to bow down to you, Mark? No. <laughs> I, I will bow down to you. As long as we don't crack in. There, there is some. Um, we don't have to lord it over one another. There, there, is, there is an old practice, and it's still kept in some Lutheran churches. When the choir member, if you have lots of choir members, and, and you have them process in, do you know those churches where you have the choir seats at the front of the church? How many of you seen that? Well, um, the old practice is the choir members would, would, would process in two at a time and they'd stop at the foot of the chancel, turn towards each other, bow, and then go and sit in their seats. My home church in uh, First Windsor does that still. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not. Cool. Yep. Um, and, and when and in Matt and in the, the other the other time in matins, when I'm doing matins, notice when I uh, um, you'll notice you'll generally see me bow from the waist when you hear the 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 invocation of God's holy name, right? Uh, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. I'll I'll be bowing for that. Well, during matins, I won't be bowing towards the altar. I'll be bowing across the way to whoever my elder is. Um, not because they're anything special, but that's just the, that's just the old tradition. Uh, God dwells in each of us um, if we're temples of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Good, good point there, uh, Dale. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's pray, and we'll finish the lesson. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so greatly for this uh, time we've had to uh, study your holy word, to hear about how you made uh, and established David's kingdom, uniting all Israel around him, and how you brought, um, uh, how you brought even foreign kings to come and acknowledge uh, David's kingship. And we thank you that this points forward to great David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, by faith and his shed blood, we have been established and made members of his kingdom. And we pray that uh, just like David, you would uh, forgive us our sins where we um, don't uh, see your way. And we pray that Lord, that as we uh, encounter your presence uh, through the word and the sacraments, that we would treat these things as special and holy because um, they are your means of talking to us. This we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to The Church Door. Thanks again for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, you can reach me, Pastor Matthew Fenn, at revfenn, R-E-V-F-E-N-N, at iCloud.com. Look forward to to having you with us again next time.